The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for His kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit ShadyGrovePCA.org. Let's give attention to God's Word, 1 Peter. We're jumping ahead. We're going to come back to 1 Peter chapter 2, but we're, as we're thinking about officer nominations, we're continuing this emphasis. Um, it's kind of more of a horizontal emphasis on a couple of these passages in 1 Peter that are directed to the church and how we're to love one another as the body of Christ. And so today we're actually going to look at 1 Peter 4, 7 to 11, then we'll jump over to chapter 5 and look at verses 1 to 5, and hopefully you'll see the connection the two passages as well. Let's give attention to these now. This is God's Word. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Picking up in chapter 5, verses 1 to 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder... And a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We pray for us. Father, we do ask that, Lord, you give us the grace of humility. For, Lord, you give grace to the humble. And we ask that as we sit under your word, that it would do its work in our hearts and lives, and that we might bear good fruit as a result of sitting under it. Help us not to forget what we look like. Help us to be doers of the word, we pray. And we do pray that you would raise up more officers in this church, elders and deacons. We pray for all of us, Lord, as we think through these commands, that, Lord, we would grow up together as the body of Christ. We ask for your grace to be upon us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you remember the Jenga game last week that was set up for the children, and at the beginning it was a visual illustration to remind us of the cornerstone is Jesus. You remember last week we talked about Jesus being the cornerstone and that we are living stones, and we are being built up as a spiritual house offering spiritual sacrifices to the Lord. That's 1 Peter 2, verses four to six. And you recall in the Old Testament, we went over this last week, that when the Lord showed up, when the tabernacle was completed, and then when the temple was dedicated, 
God's glory came down and the Spirit of God indwelt the dwellers, physical uh, location dwelling. And when God showed up, it was his Shekinah glory. And now we see in the New Testament that God's glory still shows up. It just shows up differently. Churches are not buildings. The churches are God's people. And we come together locally in local assemblies of believers. And God has given these different gifts. They're spiritual gifts. We see that in verse 10 and 11. That is, each has received a gift. So if you have come to Jesus, you put your trust in him, you realize that he's your savior, the spirit of God has worked in you to trust him The Spirit of God also comes to live inside of us, but He also gives gifts. And He gives each of us a gift. And Peter summarizes here two categories of gifts. Verse 11. He says, whoever, verse 10 and 11, whoever has a gift, use it to serve one another, good stewards of God's varied grace. And so we're all stewards of these very gifts, and to some He's given gifts to speak. So whoever speaks is to speak with the strength that God supplies. And then whoever serves is to do it by the strength that God supplies. And so the one who speaks, he's to speak the oracles of God. He's not to be speaking something of himself, but of the Lord. But then in all these things, God will be glorified through Jesus. And so as it applies to officers, we would say that two categories of the church are God grows his church through deeds of love, but then also through speaking the truth. And you need both. You need the, you know, it's kind of like, which, which uh, wheels of the car do you need? Do you need the right ones or the left ones? And the answer is you, you need them both. And you need to have the deeds, and, and then you also have to have the truth. But, so God has given two offices to the church, and the, the deacons are the ones that come alongside and do these labors of love, and they serve, and they do more service, they're more service-oriented gifts, but then the other is speaking, and obviously, you know, we're told about elders that they are to be apt to teach, and that doesn't always mean public teachers. Some elders are better in a one-on-one situation, and they're not great orators, and that's okay. But as it applies to us as the church, and he's not addressing elders here in these verses, it applies to all of us. We, which category of gifts do you fit in? Are you more comfortable just serving or do you enjoy speaking and giving an exhortation or teaching and preaching? Where, where does God gifted you? Well, that's what we kind of want to jump into this morning. I want you to see the connection between these two passages. And I think both passages have the end, the end game in mind meaning there are several references to the end. We're told in this passage here, it just begins with, the end of all things is at hand. And, and so then in chapter 5, you get these other references, that is, glory is going to be revealed, verse 1, and that we're going to be a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. And when the chief shepherd appears... He's going to reward. You will receive the unfading crown of glory. So he certainly has the end before us. And I want to refer to that kind of as the vertical relationship. And this idea of this vertical relationship is that God is going to come down. He's, Jesus is going to come back. And he begins this text with saying, the end of all things 
is at hand. Now, you remember, Jesus' public ministry began with repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's imminent. It's arrived. And it's the same word that's used here. So Peter is really convinced that it's, it's right there. Matter of fact, James says it's so close that he says the judge is standing at the door. He's standing at the door. So don't grumble against one another, brothers, so you may not be judged because the judge is standing at the door, James 5, 9. This passage is quite similar and says we're to show hospitality without grumbling because the end is upon us. And so it's like you got to keep the end game before us. And so it, and it begins with, it just, Peter makes a big deal of the word all in his epistle. There are three Uh, at least three alls in this passage, but notice how it just says the end of all things. It doesn't say end of a few things, end of some things, end of many things. The end of all things. All your plans, all your ambitions, all your dreams, everything. The end of all things. That's That's pretty sobering, isn't it? Therefore, be sober-minded. And that's another big theme in Peter. He tells us three times in this epistle to be sober. But the all is big. So where the end of all things is at hand. He wants in everything, same, same word, everything God to be glorified. And then he tells us in 5.5 5, that all of us are to be humble towards one another. But there's another eight references if you want to have a fun Sunday search and just, just type in the word all in your little phone and do a little First Peter search and just look at the references to all. They're, they're pretty interesting. Can't go through those 11 with you right now, but fun study. So he's reminding us of this end game and he's telling the elders here and for those whom God might be leading to be an elder someday, these are good words to hear. He's, he's telling us three things that we aren't supposed to do and three things that we are to do. Elders are to lead. How are they to do this? Not under compulsion. Not for shameful game. Not domineering. And instead, they are to shepherd the flock, exercising oversight, and we get a couple adverbs. Willingly, eagerly, and being examples to the flock. The idea is that we need to have right motives to be an elder. It's not for money. It's not for material gain. And we've seen some bad examples I would just say to us, you know, we, we live in a culture that, you know, you see the bumper sticker says question authority. Like, there's all of us that innately have a little bit in us that wants to question authority. And I would, I would say to us, you know, as we've seen some, some bad examples, we've seen people that have, leaders in the churches that have been for material gain. They've been out to, to make themselves wealthy. We've seen others abuse power and we've seen multiple examples of that and if you've listened to the rise and fall of Mars Hill and that's not for the faint of heart you know I've there's some believers that have listened to that and said you know this is really not good for my my Christian walk I'm like well then find something else you know just put it away because it's heavy and you see someone that seems more wolf than sheep and here's a guy who's led a church and it grows to thousands and thousands of people 15,000 people and a short amount of time, and is gone in three months. Just gone. When, is, when has that ever happened, where a church just, just completely just disappears, and all the other churches are de- dealing with the damage? 
of all of these hurt sheep. And they come in to these churches in Seattle and the other pastors. Like, man, they come in and they're like, show me your list of elders. <laughs> Who's in charge? Like, before they even sit down. They, know, like, they are on the defensive because they've been hurt. They have seen someone that's been in it more for themselves. And they've seen the damage that's been done in a whole city that's been affected. Well, we need right motives. It's not for money. We need right manner. We're not to be domineering, but to be setting an example, following Jesus. Jesus gives us the example. And why are we to do this? Well, we're told Jesus suffered, but that his glory is coming. It's going to be revealed, chapter 5, verse 1, and that we're going to be partakers in it. This is an interesting word. This word partakers is better translated partners, like partners in a business venture, an associate. We're in this together. I mean, do you remember when Jesus told Peter, let down your nets for a catch? We all remember that passage. Peter had been letting down his nets for a catch all night long, but he didn't have the nice for a catch. (laughs) And so he's not real happy about this. And he says, Lord, Master, We've been fishing all night and we've caught nothing. But whatever, if you say so, we'll do it. You know, nevertheless, at your command, I'll do it. Basically, we want to show you that there really isn't any fish here. And what happened? They caught such a large number of fish that their nets were breaking. And then what happened? They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink both boats. They signaled to their partners. Same word. Your partners in the suffering, and your partners in the glory. And when Jesus is revealed, we're told to set your hope fully on the grace that's going to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You're going to be changed Just as Jesus, as you see his glory, we too will be glorified. When the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory as the promise he gives to elders. And why would that have been important? Well, they had Olympics like we do. They weren't every four years televised on TV for everybody, but... You know, they had these Olympic games and the crown, they didn't have a gold, silver, and a bronze. They, they'd have the crown and it would be like something basically that you'd hang on your door around Christmas time called a wreath and they'd put that around your neck and it would be your, your crown. There you're, you've been crowned with this thing and it was basically these, you know, uh, basically like, like uh, what do you call it? I don't even know what you call this stuff. That's, that's alive what do you call it, shrubbery? What do you call it? <laughs> Whatever that word is, okay? But how long does that last? How long does that, those little things that you cut and you make a wreath, how long is that going to last? A couple weeks, maybe? It doesn't last very long. If you put it up at Christmas and you have this, you know, wreath that you make, it may last a few weeks and that's it. And so the idea is earthly titles are very short-lived. This is an unfading crown that will be given to you. And I think for us it's important to remember that because, you know, we run after the crowns of this life and the crowns of suburbia, the suburban gods of comfort, isolation, safety, busyness, money, climbing the ladder. And what does that really give us? 
an easy life, maybe. So the end game for Peter is he's reminding him, you're, you're a church, and, and God is coming back. So keep everything before you is at the end of all things is at hand. He's coming, you're going to be partakers, he's going to reward. And so we need to be ready. And so that's the one connection, is this vertical relationship, but then the other is all horizontal. And notice the one another verses. So if you look, go back to your text and you just kind of go through there, we're told we're to, above all, loving one another. Okay, love covers a multitude of sins. Then in the next verse, we're told to show hospitality to one another. Next verse, serve one another. And then chapter 5, verse 5, we're to clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. So we have four one another's in this text that we just, that I just read. So let's look at those briefly this morning. These four commands. First of all, it starts with above all. Above all. There's another all for you. So love one another. The idea is that if this is a ring, this is the crown jewel. This is the diamond in the ring. Love. Love one another. Keep loving one another. It's to be this crown jewel of this transformed life. We're to love one another. Everything's going to flow from love. This is the fourth time that Peter is calling the church to love. 122, fervently love one another. Love the brotherhood, 217. 38, finally all of you, one of you having brotherly love. And then here in 48, love one another again, earnestly. And so this commands of showing hospitality, serving one another, clothing yourselves with humility from one another, they all stem from the crown jewel. We're to love one another. And love does this wonderful thing. Love covers a multitude of sins. I love the story that Tim Keller tells in one of his sermons where he talks about a lady that started coming to his church and he asked her, why, why, why did you start coming? And she says, well, she says, you, you, know, you really want to know. Well, the, my, my boss um, did something amazing. She said, I really screwed up at work and he took the blame. He completely covered for me. And so when he completely covered for her, she went to him and said, this is Manhattan, like, why did you do that? He says, oh, don't worry about it. And she says, no, no, I really want to know why you did this. He says, all right, you want to know why I did this? My Savior did that for me. So I'm doing that for you. And then she said, where do you go to church? Covering sin is amazing, isn't it? Has anybody ever covered something for you, hid it, protected you from the shame that would have fallen upon you? You see, we love one another. Love covers a multitude of sins. That woman came to Christ because of that boss and what he did. Love covers a multitude of sins, and we're to show hospitality to one another. And let me just say, I, you know, if you were to ask me, when does Jesus shine on our church? You know, when does Jesus smile upon our church? Um, there are certain things I would say our church does really well. And last, last week was kind of like, like a rom-com movie. You know, two weddings and a funeral. It, you know, it sounded like, you know, this is like four weddings and a funeral or something. I mean, we had two wedding showers and a funeral. And this church and the love that was shown was just 
It was amazing. And these ladies were so touched, these women. I mean, Sydney, Sydney's not even grown up in this church. And the love that she was shown, she just, they were speechless. They just said it was amazing. And my daughter, I mean, the, the, the packages and things that people passed on to, to her were just amazing. And I was watching, like, the ladies, and ha- what they do is just really amazing. Of, it's all organized, you all come together, and then when, with the reception that was done here, you see all the stuff that was people just brought food, brought food. It's beautiful. It is really something. I remember years ago we did a wedding at a church, at our church, and we did all the food for the reception, and people just brought it. And one of the neighbors of the bride's parents came, was there, she wasn't a believer, and she just came up to me and said, is, is, you're the pastor of this church. She just said, this is impressive. It's impressive. It does speak loudly that the church would show that kind of love. And I can tell you, it gets tiring, doesn't it? You know? And so I just want to encourage you all that what you did was beautiful in this last week. And you usually don't have two showers and a funeral that all kind of come at once. But we've got some other things that are coming and we're going to continue to need to, to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Isn't that interesting how it just says without grumbling? Because, you know, we can, you know, it's funny. We, the, the women were putting on this wonderful shower here per Sydney and the men are meeting over here and, you know, we're just like serving like, you know, Panera bagels, you know, that we bought and I'm making the coffee and there's a certain button when you make coffee that you pull it out and you're supposed to let the water come up and, it, and then push it in, and once it's kind of reached through the grounds, and it makes a better cup of coffee. Well, I'm in there, and I forgot to push it in. So I made a nice pot of coffee, but nothing went into the pot. Okay, so the, la- the women are here, and they're, they're coming into the kitchen, and there is coffee literally all over the counter, all over the floor, and I have nobody to blame but myself, who forget the pu- forgot to push the button in. And we had to use like two rolls of paper towels, to fill up, to clean up our mess. And I was just wanting to grumble. I just wanted to complain. I'm thinking they do it so much better in there. How come we're struggling so much in here? But I was more of just my embarrassment of not pushing that thing in. Let me just tell you, if you are making coffee in there on the new machines, don't even bother with that button. Just don't even worry about it. It, It's trouble, okay? Now, let me just remind you, This is what the church does, okay? You think about the book of Acts and what happens when people come to Jesus. Just listen for a minute. Lydia comes to Christ in Acts 16. What does she say? She says, she gets baptized, her household gets baptized, and she says, first words out of her mouth, if you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. She prevailed upon us. They went to her house. Next passage, Philippian jailer. Philippian jailer, he gets, he gets saved, his, he gets baptized, his whole family gets baptized. They brought the, them into his house and set food before them. So as soon as he becomes a believer, he cooks up a meal for, for uh, Paul and Silas. Acts 2.42, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. 
Believers were together. They had everything in common. They're selling their possessions and good. They gave to anyone who had need. And every day they continued together to meet in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes, ate together with glad and sincere hearts. You got to love that word sincere. It means literally in Latin, without the wax. Without the wax to cover up the cracks. Meaning just real lives, sincere hearts. Here it is. Here are the cracks and all. Praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. The Lord added to the number daily those who were being saved. So they're, they're breaking bread in homes. And we see that with Lydia, with the Philippian jailer, it's just the pattern of scriptures. And we're told we're not to be lacking in zeal in Romans 12, but keep your spiritual fervor, serve in the Lord, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, share with God's people who are in need, and pursue hospitality. Pursue it. Pursue hospitality. Like, we need to hear that. After COVID, after, I mean, it's, it's more been avoid it, shun it, flee it, stay away from it, hunker down, lock your doors, don't let anybody in. You know, we've got to protect ourselves. And so this is kind of jarring for us. Pursue hospitality. Pursue it. And so we're to pursue it without grumbling because there's going to be a big pile of dishes. There's going to be stains that are going to appear, mysteriously appear on your carpet. Some may not come out. And I know we've probably put a few stains on your carpet from the elder deacon thing. I see you smiling down there. I am so sorry because I'm sure that that red cake, I think, did some damage. It, it happens. There'll be new scratches that'll appear on your wall. Your, your, your son's toy or daughter's toy might get broken. Sheets have to be washed if they stay the night. The house has to be all vacuumed and cleaned. And it, it, sometimes you just feel like, I'm, I'm too tired. And the, the young people may feel like, well, my house isn't big enough. Or I've got young children and we're too busy and we're too tired. And the older people think, we're too tired too. Everybody, we're all tired. And so we're, we're called to do this without grumbling. And this is part of what elders are to do. They're called to show hospitality, but we're all to do it. Rosario Butterfield in her book, The Gospel Comes with the House Key, and I do almost feel like there could be a little twinge of, I hope she's not grumbling here, but she says, while others brag about how cheap they are when it comes to hospitality, she says, Ken and I budget for it. And she said, and it hurts. Practicing daily, ordinary Christian hospitality doubles our grocery budget, sometimes triples it. There are vacations we do not take, house projects that never get started, entertainment habits that never get an open door, new cars and gadgets that we don't even bother coveting. Our children will never be Olympic-level soccer stars, wear designer clothes, or have social calendars requiring a staff of drivers. Instead, my children build forts and catch frogs in the backyard, eat popsicles and trees, and bring neighborhood kids to dinner and devotions when the bell rings. I mention it like that just to give us perspective. Like, where are our priorities? Not everybody's going to be Rosario Butterfield, and that's okay. But I do think all of us need to be working. How do we show hospitality? I mean, all of us eat between 14 and 21 meals a week, right? Either two meals a day or three meals a day. How can we intentionally try to spend and eat meals with other people so that we're fellowshipping together, showing hospitality? This was such a crucial thing for the early church because they didn't have inns, they didn't have motels, they didn't have hotels. You know, there was no Red Roof Inn or or the Marriott or any of that kind of thing. And and some of the places that that did actually have an inn, sometimes those were seedy places. 
And so the Christians were to show hospitality. And what hospitality meant was taking these itinerant missionaries and pastors into your home and keeping them. And sometimes it could be for a few days. And so that's what, when you think about hospitality, what it meant in that context, that was pretty important commitment. And it was the way the gospel spread. Some were senders, some were goers. But the senders were were taking in these missionaries. And then as you think about it, in our context, you know, I've been reading this book, Evangelism in Exile by uh, Elliot Clark. It's an interesting book. And he says, you know, we have this all-American proverb from the field of dreams. If you build it, they'll come. And he says it's characterized the Western approach to evangelism and church growth for some generations. We have a long history of promoting large crusades or tent revivals that draw a crowd for a gospel presentation. In fact, many Christians are explicitly taught or implicitly assume that inviting their neighbor to such an event amounts to evangelism. And he says, but, but what they're really doing is counting on you know, the church to do the evangelizing. But he, what he's getting at, though, is that he says this is an attractional model of mission. And he's saying, as a result, our greatest aspirations, you know, are, are basically around just getting them to come. But he's saying the attractional model is becoming less and less something that the world is interested in because they're not wanting to come. And so what he's saying is, is what we need to do is take the church to them. And the way you take the church to them is you invite them to your house and you have a meal with them. And we start inviting people to our tables rather than assuming if you build it, the big thing, that they're going to come. And I'll just share with you a story. You know, I, I shared with a story about jo- Josiah Henson a few weeks ago. And um, Josiah Henson is the name of the new highway where they've changed uh, the parkway, the Montrose Parkway has been changed, and the name is going to be Josiah Henson, who was a slave uh, from 200 years ago in this area, was in Rockville, got saved around the Bethesda area, and later he escaped. And he was, was down in Kentucky, and he escapes, and he's, and he's making his way with his young family. He's got a two-year-old, a three-year-old that he's actually carrying on his back, with this sack that his wife had made. And he talks about hospitality in this little snippet that I'll read to you. He says, for a fourth, this is him escaping. He says, for a fourth night, we press steadily on, keeping to the road during the night, hiding whenever a chance vehicle or, or horseman was heard. And during the day, burying ourselves in the woods. Our provisions were rapidly giving out. Two days before reaching Cincinnati, they were utterly exhausted. All night long, the children cried with hunger. My poor wife loaded me with reproaches for bringing them into such misery. It was a bitter thing to hear them cry, and God knows I needed encouragement myself. My limbs were weary, my back and shoulders raw with the burden I carried. A fearful dread of detection even pursued me, ever pursued me, and I would start out of my sleep in terror, my heart beating against my ribs, expecting to find the dogs and slave hunters after me. Had I been alone, I would have borne starvation, or starvation even to exhaustion, before I would have ventured in sight of a house in quest for food. But now something must be done. It was necessary to run the risk of exposure by daylight upon the road. The only way to pursue, perceive was to adopt a bold course. Accordingly, I left our hiding place, took to the road, and turned toward the south to lure any suspicion that might be aroused were I to be seen going the other way. 
Before long, I came to a house. A furious dog rushed out at me and his master following to quiet him. I asked him if he would sell me a little bread and meat. He was a surely fellow. And he said, I have nothing for it. He uses the N-word, which I apologize for using two weeks ago. And we've scrubbed that from the online version of the sermon. But he says, I have nothing for black people. And he said, at, that, at the next, I succeeded no better at first. The man of the house met me in the same style. But his wife, hearing our conversation, said to her husband, <clears throat> how can you treat any human being so? If a dog was hungry, I would give him something to eat. She then added, we have children, and who knows, but they may need some help someday from the help of a friend. The man laughed and told her that if she should care for black people, he wouldn't. She asked me to come in, loaded a plate with venison and bread, and when I laid it into my handkerchief and put a quarter of a dollar on the table, she quietly took it up and put it back into my handkerchief with an additional quality of venison. I felt the hot tears roll down my cheeks as she said, God bless you. And I hurried away to bless my starving wife and little ones. You see, Jesus said I was hungry and you gave me food. And I was thirsty and you gave me drink. And I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did you see a stranger and welcome Welcome, you were naked and clothe you. And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer you, answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to the least, one of, one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Edith Schaefer, she's now with the Lord. This is Francis Schaefer's wife. This is in the 70s. She wrote this book called The Hidden Art of Homemaking. And she talks about how they live near a train track and they would get these hobos that would come and knock on the door and would ask her for a cup of coffee and maybe a, a piece of bread. And you know what she said? This is what she said. I would butter the bread, cut a lovely big tomato and even slices and pepper them, place them on the bread, then decide to add bacon. I would sizzle one slice to fold over the tomato and add two leaves of lettuce. For a second sandwich, I'd prepare him my own favorite, walnut half stuck into the butter, salted on one slice, and then the second slice of buttered bread placed on top. I di a diagonal cut through the first sandwich showed red tomato and green lettuce attractively displayed in the slash. The walnuts crunched as the knife went diagonally through the second sandwich. Alternating these four triangles on a lovely dinner plate came next, with pickle trim on one and parsley on the other. Now for the steaming hot soup left over from our lunch. I would put a good bowl of this on the tray and the children would help me fix a tiny bouquet of flowers nested in an ivy leaf. What will he think of that, mommy? Priscilla asked with big wondering tears. Well, perhaps he'll remember something in the past. Perhaps he had a very nice home once where meals were prepared with him. Anyway, he'll stop and think and we'll give him this little gospel of John to read while he's eating. He can take it away with him and who knows, perhaps he'll do a lot of thinking and someday believe. Anyway, he may realize we care something about him as a person, and that's important. Priscilla would hold the screen door open as her daughter as I would take it out and watch his surprised face when he would see the tray. For me? Is this for me? You see, the church has a great opportunity right now, and one of our best opportunities of doing mission and, and showing love of the body is by being hospitable. There's a quote in your bulletin, the reflection quotes, 
It's from Tim Chester on A Meal with Jesus. He said, if I pull down books on mission and church planning from the shelves, I can read about contextualization and evangelism matrices and postmodern apologetics and cultural hermeneutics. I can look at diagrams that tell how people can be converted and discover the steps required to plant a church. It all sounds impressive, cutting edge and sophisticated. But this is how Luke describes Jesus' mission strategy. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. <laughs> like, it's a lot more simple than we think. And so as we do these things, we have this opportunity to minister to one another, but we also have an opportunity to minister and love our neighbors. We could go on, but I think I'll I'll stop there with remembering that our Jesus has loved us and served us. And as David pursued a Mephibosheth and looked for somebody to show hospitality as he'd been granted so much privilege, he must show that, that love for others May we do the same. May God open up our hearts and our homes. Let's pray. Father, do give us humility one for another. We ask that, Lord, you would bless our homes, open up our hearts. May they grow wider and larger. Lord, we know the pandemic has caused much shriveling and shrinking back, and we pray that, Lord, we would return And that you would, by your spirit, Lord, work in the hearts of each of us, Lord, to extend the love that you have given to us. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.